Welcome back to season three of the podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Blackwood. As many of you know, I wrote my autobiography as a survivor of human trafficking called Custom Justice. But if you didn't know, you do now. Keeping in line with that, this entire season has been focused on interviewing people who did or plan to write about their own experiences as trauma survivors and how they overcame their past. If that sounds like you, reach out. We can talk about having you on the show, too. As much as we all hate commercials, they are a necessary evil these days. This is what keeps the show on the air. You can also show support by purchasing one of my many books or donating through PayPal. You can find the links to either option in the podcast description. As always, a portion of the proceeds do go to local organizations that help fight human trafficking. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the podcast. Once again, I have an incredible guest this week. Um, her name is Carol Stizza. She's been through some crazy stuff, but she's had some wild adventures, it seems, too. I can't wait for her to be able to tell you the story. She's going to do it way more justice than I will. So as always, I'm going to welcome her to the show so she can tell you about it. Carol, welcome. Thank you. I'm oh, excited I... to get to know you. My Thank goodness. You. You've had a crazy life. So we're going to start this out on kind of the the easy end of things. Tell us a little bit about where you were originally from. Where did you grow up? I got to grow up on the waterfront of Texas down near NASA. So my little town is called Laporte. NASA was in Clear Lake. And I had like astronaut wives for Girl Scout leaders. It was really idyllic. Wow. That's incredible. Oh my gosh. It so was a lot of fun. I bet it was. You probably went to school with the kids of astronauts and went to Girl Scouts with the kids of astronauts. Yep. Oh and gosh. they're just like us. <laughs> yeah. <It's> like <laughs> they're just humans. Yep. <laughs> so you've been through some crazy stuff. You're, it, it started out when you were pretty young. I think I read something about six was kind of the first major shift. What happened? Yeah, so um, I, my family was um, vacationing on a farm in Missouri, visiting our grandparents, and we were there because several of our family were gathering to attend um, a local funeral, the, someone they knew, right? So um, I had been the babysitter, and on the way back from the funeral, we got um, hit uh, we were turning into the the farm and the sheriff's son was racing his buddy up the other side of the hill after drinking. And we got hit and rolled down the hill and lost um, half my family that was in that car that day. So, Oh my gosh. It was um, one of those really rare moments that movies really try to portray where I was the only person who could climb out of the car and get help. And I could remember every detail of that day forever. Um, and I think when you are able to remember and clearly walk through that scene, you handle it better than people who woke up later or don't remember much. And I, I think that was a blessing of that wow. day. That's got to be a lot of responsibility for a six-year-old though. Did did you recognize that you had lost so many of your family members right at that moment? No. Um, I remember I'm, I was, again, blessed to look down on the scene in the car, and there wasn't a lot of blood. Um, so everybody looked like they were asleep, kind of like um, dummies piled in a pile. And I do remember hearing um, labored breathing, which freaked me out. So I went to open the window. We were on our side. My right arm didn't work, so I had to try the left arm to get out. Um, and as I was sitting on the side of the road with the young man who had driven up in a truck and lifted me out, um, I do remember asking, like, where's my brother? And he was like, what do you mean your brother? He's thinking the brother's at a daycare. And I go, no, 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 no my brother was sitting right next to me. I had my Barbie. He had his car. Where is he now? And this young man I'm, I imagine he's in his early 20s, said, well, I'll be right back. And he went and someone, I, I imagine she was a nurse. She didn't have a nurse's uniform on, but she was helping. 
And she came back. She goes, well, honey, I just don't. Are you sure? And I said, oh, no, no. He's three. He was in the car right next to me. And of course, they had no idea. The tow truck was already hooked up and everything stopped and scrambled. And sure enough, they found him underneath the back seat. And so it was like that moment that I remember looking back on. I did not think about it for years, years until later in my career. And, and someone asked the question, who did you become now because of the horrible things that happened? And I remember thinking back to that moment when that nurse came back to me and she said, Carol, I'm so glad that you spoke up, that you were brave enough to ask about your brother, because if you hadn't have asked, we wouldn't have found him and the tow the car would have been towed. Oh, my because of gosh. your actions, right? Because of your actions, he will go with you to the hospital. And I didn't put two and two together until decades later when I realized, oh, that's why I speak up when I see people who are quiet being wronged. That's why I speak up when wow. something needs to be said. That's where that comes from. So that moment changed the trajectory of your life when you were only six years old. It, it did in a very unconscious way. I just didn't yeah. know to give it credit. I mean, there was a lot of bad that went on. Like my dad never recovered when my mom died. His mom had died just five months before. And of course, in that car accident, my mom and both her parents died. So his lifeline of support was left to be his dad. And we didn't have a really rich relationship. Um, and my dad just, I mean, I, I technically lost both parents. My dad just never recovered. He meant well. Nobody gets up any one day going, I can't wait to suck. You know, they <laughs> just don't. Um, but when you're hurting, it's hard to look out for other people when you yeah. hate the hurt you have. Oh, so there was a lot that went bad for a long time. Yeah. And you had another, was it another accident at 17? Yeah, I should probably prepare your audience. I had three car accidents, all stopped and turning left, and then cancer. So I'll just lay the roadmap out for everybody because they're going to go, what? And what? And what? Um, yeah, I'm like that bad movie, Three Weddings and a Funeral. It's just turning all, of, oh, man. all around, right? Um, yeah, when I was 17, I was coming back from getting, for the people who can remember this, the Olin Mills photos you have in high school. Um and they were horrible and I was mad and I was upset <laughs> and I'm driving home and I'm in one of these kind of a tucked away left turn curvy things where you're just facing the way you want to go, but it's still technically a, a left turn. And a young woman, probably about the same age, who was ecstatic driving home fast because she just got her braces off, was um, tailgating a truck and she swung around to pass him as he was turning left and overcompensated and I probably was already sticking out a little bit too because I didn't see anybody else but the truck and wow she just plowed into me um and you know ironies of ironies she lost a front tooth um oh um but and I was in intensive care <laughs> so <laughs> I was like huh interesting um oh. But I do remember, you know, and again, it's the same question. Who are you now in a great way because of the crap that you went through? Right. And I, the most um, notable memory that I could go back and start to connect the dots was, I remember being in intensive care and the room was dark. And I remember overhearing in these moments where the painkiller was probably wearing off, um, Someone says, yeah, the other driver said that they just never saw her. And I remember feeling in my gut, oh my God, this must be what it feels like to walk around and feel invisible. Oof. And somehow I knew that when I made my way finally after rehab and learning how to walk and I had, you know, just I had a broken nose and a collapsed lung and a ruptured diaphragm and just... Good you know, grief. I know. It was just massive. Um, I, know, I knew that when I went back to school, the one thing that I could control was that I would smile at everyone all the time. 
I wanted everybody who I saw to know that I saw them on that moment, on that day, and they weren't invisible. Oh, that's cool. And I just remember going, oh, that's why. I remember going back going, I just know I need to smile. And for a long time, I'm like, never gave it a second thought until I started to connect the dots. And, and it totally makes sense. I mean, you felt invisible. You didn't want other people to feel invisible. But also smiling at somebody can a lot of times make you feel seen, too. Right. I mean, smiling is one of the scientifically proven. It's probably the only fake it till you make it thing that works. <laughs> right. It really is. You use so many muscles. The endorphins are almost immediate. The longer you smile, the more endorphins you get. The best exercise you can do for your face every day. But it is a fake it till you make it thing that actually works. Yeah. Yeah. So I just remember smiling a lot. Yeah. I've been (laughs) caught smiling in some of the darkest moments of my life. And it's, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. You smile to make you feel better. And there so, were a, you know, co- quite a few times in college, the habit of smiling would, you know, bring on some unsolicited, you know, date request. And it was like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, that's not what this is. <laughs> I smile at everyone. Sorry. <laughs> no, no mixed messages. Um, and that's just interesting. So, you know, I, I, um, I had a brilliant um, experience of meeting my husband on a, on a blind date. And we had a long distance relationship. him and we were in Florida and I'm driving my oldest of two so my son to a music choir thing at school and you know we're going through a left turn light the light was in my favor oh no and a drunk driver um plowed through his red light and just you know hit the car now thankfully technology had started to keep catch up and there was a Honda Civic and it did its job. The the front rolled under. Um, My son and I both hit the windshield because we had just undone our seat seat belts because papers in the back seat were flying around. The windows have been open. It's Florida. We're trying to catch Mm -hmm. them. Hadn't buckled back in as I'm rolling through. So for anybody, before you move, put your seatbelt on always. (laughs) Just don't know. Um, And that wasn't so much of a a real injury based car accident, but what it did do was give my son and I our first, I mean, our, a case of whiplash that was so bad that we actually thought our son's one leg was growing longer than the other. I'd never been to a chiropractor um, until then. Cause you know, my parents were farmers from Missouri that didn't believe in that. And um, (laughs) hard work would straighten everybody out, right? So (laughs) we finally did go find a chiropractor. But what it taught me and and what how that helped shape me was you could only control your response to things. You can only control your attitude. And that's something I got to kind of start emulating for my son because he couldn't he was uncomfortable he couldn't he had headaches he quit baseball I mean there was a lot at 12 that he shouldn't have been asked or felt the need to do but he just didn't feel good um we did you know with chiropractic care do a lot of great things but I it really taught me how intentional you need to be about talking about handling your attitude that it is something you can control. Happiness is a choice. What you right. stress about is a choice. And that was a real turning point for me as a parent to walk the talk. Wow. Oh, what a great lesson for him to learn from somebody that, that knows how to take lessons from these really difficult moments too. Well, and to his credit, he is a a dad now of two young kids and so he's exhausted (laughs) he's not thinking about you know anything that i'm talking about now he's like what are you exhausted what are you talking about um (laughs) but as his kids get older i'll remind him hey remember (laughs) this is this is your time you get to be 
intentional. You get to walk the talk. It's time, you know. Um, but I have to say, on being a grandmommy, though, I, I'm very excited. I get to see them tomorrow. Actually, oh, um, oh my yeah. gosh! What yeah. do they call you? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, they call me yeah, yeah. No one in my family is Greek, which is why I'm called yeah, yeah. Because then no one fights over the name. We're Italian. <laughs> there are Nonas coming out of our the wazoo. There are G's. There are Gigi's. Um, and I go, and really, whatever you want to be called um, doesn't matter. It's whatever your children will help <laughs> your grandchildren call you that matters. So don't get too attached to some future grandparent name unless your children are all in agreement. <laughs> right. I'm expecting my first grandbaby very soon. Oh, it's so exciting. Yes. So excited for you. Um, <laughs> Which makes, you know, being here so much richer because oh yeah, we both know there are times in our life when we were like, yeah, not sure. Not <laughs> sure if there's a tomorrow, not yeah. sure what tomorrow looks like, not sure I'm happy about tomorrow. Um, yeah. There's just those moments um, that I truly appreciate. Um, again, I, happiness is a choice. I am not one of those people who is blessed to have um, what some of the assessments in the strength world call positivity. I have to choose it. I have to work on it. Um, my husband has positivity as a very strong trait. Um, so when he gets tired, he's still happy. When I get tired, I am so sad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sad. And it's just when I get tired, it's one of the things that when I start to feel sad, I go, Oh honey, you're tired. You better get some sleep. <laughs> Does he help you to stay positive? Um, he, it's funny. I think when you have a strength, you think it's so natural that you don't think it's a strength and that it's not your job to force it on anybody. He's, very, he comes from a very independent family. In fact, one of the things that connected us was his father died in Vietnam the same summer or the same year my mom died in the car accident. Oh so my we gosh. both, I know, we both watched the opposite sex parent do it, do parenting in very odd ways, whatever way they could muster right. at the time. So I grew up watching a dad. He grew up watching a mom. And, and to his mother's credit, um, well, there's a blessing and a burden here. So the blessing was he was raised by very independent working women. So he was independent. And he also expected all the women in his circle to be independent. Um, I, I was being raised by very bigoted patriarchal men. <laughs> So, you know, I've got my feathers ruffled from a very early age. Like, what do you mean? I'm invisible. What do you mean? I don't matter. What do you mean? What? What? You know? <laughs> um, and so, but, but the, the uh, burden side of my husband's situation was all the men in his family had died when their son was like eight or nine. Oof. So his grandfather died when his father was um, nine and his father died when my husband was eight. And of course our firstborn was a son. You don't think I freaked out between the ages of six and 10 for this poor kid. I mean, yeah. just like, okay, just come home. Just come home. <laughs> just don't die. You know, he's like, did you just stop being morbid Carol? I'm like, no, no trends. <laughs> don't want, don't want this to be a curse. Did um, your husband have that kind of a panic to him too? If he did, he didn't voice it. Um, yeah we talked about it enough. We kind of joked about it. Like, okay, he's seven. He's in the range. You have to be careful. <laughs> you have to, you know, and it was just kind of a, a, an ongoing joke that we, you know, had some serious roots that we didn't want to, you know, fluster yeah. um, at all, uh, which was, it's, it's very interesting. When we got together, we married, we'd been apart for a long time. Then, um, dating long distance. So we started to calculate, things started getting rocky really fast. So we started to calculate how many days we were actually in each other's presence before we were married. And over the two plus years, it was only six weeks, which mainly were lust, 
So, um, you know, I still thought he was really good looking and cute, but wow, we had a lot to work on. Um, <laughs> and one of the best solutions he offered was because I got up thinking he'd wanted breakfast. So I, I got up and made him breakfast was like I did my dad. And he wakes up and he's like, um, first of all, I don't eat breakfast. Uh, <laughs> two, I don't expect you to cook it. And three, I really don't have time to even eat it. And of course, for me, immediate tears. Because oh, I'm yeah. like, he doesn't need me. Oh my God, I'm just all backwards thinking. I mean, from <laughs> just poor training. And he came home and he says, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to make a menu for at night and on weekends. And whoever gets home first starts cooking, right? So whoever gets home first, whoever's the hungriest, we just call it the no whining policy. And we have had that for decades until he decided to take over all the cooking, which I happily, oh, happily <laughs> blessed him with like, oh, here, what can I do to make you know how appreciative I am? Um, <laughs> yeah, when the kids left to go to college, I was like, it's no fun to cook for just two people because you eat for three and then you say you're too full and then you snore. It's just not going to work. Um, <laughs> but the real, the real, um, the real uh, fork in the road was when, um, at the age of 49, I've been um, fighting for a year to get my doctor to take me seriously. And I finally go, well, obviously she's not going to listen to me. I'm going to get a second opinion. And as I'm sitting in the waiting room after surgery, after tests, after tests and surgeries, and, and I'm about to meet my oncology team, I am angry beyond angry that I had fallen prey to being uh, kind of passed off, um, thinking I didn't know what I was talking about when it came to my own body. When I found out I had um, stage three cancer and went through my chemo, I couldn't taste anything. So my poor husband, one, had to learn how to cook quickly out of survival, but two, started watching the Food Network. And I just had to say, look, I love you, but the only thing that really tastes good to me is fruit and salt. So you can make whatever you want. Um, <laughs> And he just became the cook. And at a certain time I got well and I go, yeah, I got, do you mind keep, keep doing that? Cause that's the one thing I don't want back. And he goes, absolutely. Um, <laughs> so he has just been a, a real trooper, but yeah, that, um, that um, interesting blow um, of not being taken seriously for a year and then having something that could have been so minimal um, become so, not minimal. That journey was a very interesting journey to come out of. Um, I bet. I mean, your family probably was terrified for you. It's stage three. Yeah, I, I, I had to go home and I go, well, the good news is this is stage three. The bad news is there is no stage five. So <laughs> here's what we're going to do. Um, I hope that that everyone who is a huge raving fan of your podcast knows that there are these really interesting little blessings that happen right in the middle of trauma that you don't know, you don't appreciate until you have a little bit more perspective. But one of the things that happened was I had a friend who was, um, had a mother, she, so she had been tested. She had the BRAC genes for, um, different types of female cancers and just in passing right before I learned of the news, she says, if you ever get a diagnosis that scares you, call me. Well, oh. there you go. So I immediately called her and um, she says, okay, you need to get this book and you need to watch this video. And she goes, you need to choose what you want to control and you need to choose what you can control. And that was a really interesting thing to say. So she turned me on to all the research that had been done about diet and diseases. And we've all heard that a lot of people are recommended to do certain types of diets for certain types of chemo. And the chemo drug cocktails are all different. So when someone says they're going through chemo, they're not the same. So I had one cocktail, whereas my friend going through breast cancer had a different cocktail. Um, and so I chose to do a huge diet shift. I chose to 
really lean into meditation and any type of comfort care that anybody was willing to share with me. I'd try at least once or twice. Um, I had found a Navy SEAL who was doing Reiki. And I'd never wow. had it. And it was just kind of like, well, that just sounds kind of fluffy. You're going to roll your hands in midair over my body. Okay. Without, I don't have to get undressed. That's good. You know, <laughs> but between um, meditation, a change in diet, I kept going to the gym, even when I lost all my hair, even when I didn't feel like going, I at least went, <laughs> went um, and did something. Uh, it was, I, I learned I could control my thoughts. I can control what I put in my body. I can control what I did with my body. And you know, that is pretty much what it takes just to change everything. Um, yeah. The mental state, understanding my brain was my hard drive. And I had to make sure my hard drive was in optimal working order. And the value of meditation is when, if you do it to, when you finally reach that point where you've experienced even a couple minutes of just brain quieting, I didn't realize that that is the only time your body goes, oh, thank God you stopped thinking. Now we can heal ourselves. Because technically, every single thought you have, your body's prepared to actually act on it. Wow. And that was a big why behind why to do meditation when you are fighting something health-wise. I had no idea that's the only time your body gets to clean house other than sleeping. And if you're a good sleeper, then you feel that if you're not a good sleeper, you need to figure that out. Pay attention because your body needs it. Um, But I did learn to be my own advocate. (laughs) I would have to say that understanding how long I had waited before I acted, waiting almost cost me my life. And here's the funny thing I realized, because I was at the same time, I was going through a master's program. I was working for a consulting firm remote and trying to go through chemo um, and radiation while trying to learn statistics. Not a good combination. Just (laughs) it's a horrible combination. I know what to do with statistic results. I don't know how to get them now because of that. Um, But I immediately got mad about waiting. And then I realized I waited in a lot of areas of work too. And that was a huge catalyst for me to stop waiting. But when you say that, you're like, okay, cool, stop waiting. And then everybody's like, and then what? And I go, <laughs> right. uh-huh. yeah, you stop waiting. Then you start asking. You start asking for the information you need. And that's what trips everybody up because we are so conditioned to not ask anything at all so i was curious why don't we ask well we're we're conditioned out in school as soon as we started teaching to the test it was memorization and regurgitation we kind of quelch critical thinking and when you quelch critical thinking you quelch questions period so we are in a absorption stage from the time we get to maybe first grade all the way through college. And then suddenly you graduate college and they go, okay, we want you to critically analyze and ask great questions and step into work and know what you're doing. And everybody's like, I, I don't know what I'm doing. I really, <laughs> I really don't know what I'm doing. And yep. what was interesting is I just kept seeking. I'm apparently one of these, you know, infinite learners. And when I learned that the brain is only scanning the universe for two things all the time. It explained so much. So the brain's always scanning for where do we fit and where do we grow next? That's it, all the time. So think about social media. You scroll, things you like, and then you get interested and you wanna know more. So then you scroll, where do I wanna fit next? How do I grow to get there? It's an infinity loop of brilliance that sucks you in. And that's the same thing we want from work. Where do I fit and where can I grow next? 
Meaning, what am I currently doing right that you don't want me to change? And where can I grow next so that I can change what I have to change? Those That's are the questions awesome. we want to ask. Yeah. But instead we go, so how can I improve? I <laughs> hate that question. And the reason I hate that question is because it makes the other person think that you think you're broken and you need fixing. So they get to be the fixer. So they start to offer you things that you're really doing wrong in their perspective. And that's not what really wanted at all. You're just wanting to know, okay, what am I doing right? What do you brag about? What do you like about what I'm doing? And then once I know that, where do you think I can grow next? Those are the questions we want to ask. So I learned this when I was really struggling in school, really struggling in that remote consulting job and trying to go to school. And I kept asking the doctors, what do we measure when we know what's going right? What do we measure when we know what's going right? And at first they're like, we're here to fix things. I said, no, I'm not broken. I just have a, <laughs> I just have a glitch in my hard drive. It's really wreaking havoc on my body. What should I be measuring when it's going right. And they said, okay, when you go for your blood test, here are the blood markers, here's what you really want to be in, here's where you don't want to be. And it caused a different conversation. And so I took that and I started researching, well, who else does this? There's a, there's a organizational approach called appreciative inquiry, which is what they do is they sit down and say, okay, what's going right? What are we all doing right? What's how, what, and what that does is allows them, allow them to go, okay, so if this went right, how do we apply that to this new problem? And that's when I go, oh, what if I go about everything? And my first question is, so what's going right? That and is the brilliance a- of that. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to re- cut you off. No, no, you're, you're okay. I was just thinking this, this is groundbreaking this is brilliant this is amazing so when you're so think well my thought my next thought was when you're going through crap when you're going through trauma i mean i was going through cancer and i literally go so what's going right ironic right they're going <laughs> I, I think she's lost her mind has she been drinking i don't know what did you give her <laughs> right oh, i don't know um i said no, no no i need to go back to my family and tell them what's working. I need to know what's going right. You get what you focus on. So I need to train my brain to focus on what's working. So I don't stop doing that. And when I ask that question now, what's going right? It's not flippant. There is a neuroscientific background here because when you're forced to go, well, okay, I remember my underwear. I matched my socks today. Okay, I got up. Fine, fine. When you start to give yourself credit for what is going right, it balances out and neutralizes the negative feelings too. It balances the scorecard emotionally. And that was a a lifeline. That's amazing. Do you think that's what got you through all of this? I would say that was a big yes, because when you feel like you can control something, it gives you power. It, it makes you a player in the game, not a victim. And we all need a little autonomy to feel like we're in some control of our destiny. I love how you took control. I mean, all of these things kept on piling up. You could have been a completely different person if you allowed these traumas to kind of beat you down because it was definitely trying to, but you just kept yeah. on fighting. You, you yeah. had family you got to go back for. Right, right. Um, <laughs> it wasn't until just a few years ago that we were laughing. My mom, bless her heart, took her nine years to have me, nine years to have, you know, three years later, you know, my brother. Um, she felt that it was a sign of good luck if your kid's initials spelled something. So my initials spelled cat and my brother's spelled jet. 
And um, <laughs> I had to laugh. I said, well, even though I married, you know, one letter out of that, um, I, I don't want to have nine lives. I really don't want to keep this trial going. I said, so, but I'm very grateful to have the ability to have just another life past the last one. Um, and maybe that was the blessing with the initial spelling cat. And ironically, my brother, even though he was had a career in the Marines, he now works um, in uh, rocketry and, and unmanned aerial vehicles. So, oh my gosh. <laughs> it's just the funniest, funniest things. Looking back, perspective gives you blessings and humor. Um, but for every blessing, there was a burden. And for every burden, there will be a blessing. You just have to choose to find it. Always. Who would you say inspires you the most? Oh, you know, and I know this is going to sound so cliched. I have always admired Rosa Parks. Oh, very cool. Because she, in the midst of a huge social norm, she was mad enough, tired enough, the stars aligned that she just couldn't see why to get out of that seat. And it took probably just a lot of exhaustion. But if she had tried to plan that, she would have chickened out. <laughs> right? <laughs> we plan things like, okay, no, it's not going to work today. I'll just stand up. So let's just <laughs> say that a lot of, of, of buildup helped her in that moment of social visibility. But it taught me that sometimes you need to not think and trust those instincts to stand up, to speak up, to smile at someone, to reach out and shake the hand and get to know the name of a homeless person. Whatever it is, sometimes your gut is a lot smarter than the social norms you're trying to sit in. Wow. And she just inspires me because she put her life on the line and her family's life on the line in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. At that point in time, it absolutely was taking her life in her own hands. Everything was up and up people. Yeah. And that, I don't know if I, I don't know how much exhaustion I would have had to have experienced to, to be as, as brave, but that she, I just always think of her. I don't know her. I never got to know her. Right. But I think of that moment in time, that one gesture, one moment of exasperated impatience, built up anger, built up, you know, social unjust, just helped a nation see differently. That's pretty powerful. Carol, do you happen to have your book handy? Would you be able to uh, read a little bit of it for the audience? I do. Um, it's funny because I had it out here and someone moved it, but I have right here. Okay. <laughs> and what's your book called? <laughs> They're going to laugh. It's called The Ask Framework. That's <laughs> a brilliantly creative title. Um <laughs> Um, well, you know what the book is about this way, you know, it's, that's what know. a book title is all about, right? <laughs> that's right. Um, let me find the page I had marked here. Um, it's kind of the, the first chapter, ironically, is the longest because there was a point in time when I realized, um, and this is, this is before the cancer diagnosis, this was just in a working situation um, that I was in a performance review that was going completely wrong. Um, so, and I, sadly, your audience may be able to relate with this, even though you'd like it to be a one-off and not recognizable. So I'll just read a, um, a couple pages. Okay. I sat frustrated gripping the steering wheel while still sitting in the parking garage before heading home. 
white knuckled and internally yelling at myself. I couldn't believe I found myself on the receiving end of a lunch with two bosses who fumbled their way through what was supposed to be a performance review. 12 months of suffering in a role that left me unchallenged, unmotivated and unfulfilled. And now with no information of where to grow in the organization, I felt lost. We've all had a bad day. We've seen this scene in the movie that caused the character to grow, change, or see the world differently. For me, this was one of those days that started a chain reaction to now. A simple performance review that finally revealed what I had suspected all along. I was working for a person in a role above their experience, and I was paying for it on the short end of the underappreciated, underpaid, and overlooked stick. Prior to this, I had never been reviewed as anything less than a rock star in my abilities as a professional. What had gone so wrong? Sitting at an awkward lunch, the founder of the company and my immediate boss were sitting across from me. These were people I trusted to step up to recognize my contributions. Instead of talking about the significant work I had accomplished, the projects I had started and completed, what I had added to the organization, and how well I'd done, my boss joked and made fun of my small discrepancies, grammatical errors, and insignificant mistakes in my work, leaving me feeling picked on and belittled. I sat there dumbstruck. At no time did either my boss or her boss take my performance review seriously. What was going on? Anytime there was a pause, as if to say, okay, let's get to the real reason we're here, the joking started all over again, as if on repeat by default. <laughs> I was rendered speechless. Did my boss really know what to do in a performance review, especially in front of the boss? Making a joke about my mistakes seemed to be the only point. Would this ever end? Wouldn't either of them take the initiative to ask about my contributions? My brain seemed paralyzed to intervene. Then my gut started to talk as loud as a banging drum. The overwhelming screaming from my gut said, quit now. Politely put in your two weeks notice and turn this into an exit interview. Now, get the right attention to how badly this all went and move on. Move on? Without a job to go to? Oh, the angel and the devil were at war, sitting on either side of my head, begging me to act. Instead, I sat frozen at that lunch as if watching a horror show. And now, in my car, I sat fuming. And then it slowly dawned on me. I wasn't fuming because of the performance review. I was fuming because I was so mad at myself for having sat there, a mute and silent witness to such a bad showcase of management. Even worse, I had settled for such a crappy job in the first place, and deep down I had known this was a poor job pit from the beginning, almost as soon as I started working there. And I'll stop right there. Wow. Okay. <laughs> that was a bad day. That was just a bad day. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I can absolutely identify with that too. I, I've had those days, but you just made it so clear to me that for the first time, looking back on this stuff, for the first time, I can recognize that I wasn't mad at them. I was mad at myself for putting up with it for as long as I had. Yep. I don't think I'd ever realized that before. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We are funny human beings. That is for sure. Oh, um, my gosh. I figured I can, I can make this work. Oh, good mm -hmm. Lord. I did that with relationships in my life, too. I can make this work. <laughs> It, yeah, it's it's funny. I think just um, in the last four or five years of research, I, the the crystallizing um, release from taking on other people's emotions. Um, so, to your point, um, we as humans don't know what to do with negative feelings. You know, if our brain is scanning the the world for where do we fit and where to grow next, it's there's no room for the negative. So when we don't feel good, when we feel mad, when we feel agitated, when we feel anything, we try and get rid of it. 
And we don't do that well at all because we project out. So we blame somebody. We blame a situation. We blame, we blame. We just, we're like throwing mud on the wall. We just want to get rid of it. And the same is true when you're on the receiving end of someone's emotions. Like, I can't believe you did this and you did this. So here's what I've realized. If you're the person that someone's trying to project on, it has nothing to do with you. It's all about the person who has the feeling. So while I was mad at that situation, I was madder at myself. So I coach people often, especially in the work world, because people get aggravated and frustrated and mad and they just project out and they'll blame somebody, anybody, anything. If you're a leader and someone comes at you and they're mad, Knowing it has nothing to do with you. Seriously, it has nothing to do with the person being yelled at. They may have triggered something, but you can't make somebody feel anything. The best thing you can do as the person on the receiving end of any negative emotions is to recognize it's not about you. That's number one. Two, recognize the person doesn't know what to do with their feelings, so they're projecting. Even if it's something that they say you triggered And third, the best thing you can do is acknowledge, whoa, you are feeling some sense of frustration. Ask them, what is frustrating you the most? The moment you ask that of them, they have permission now to talk about their feelings. And the moment they start talking about their feelings, it neutralizes the height of that feeling, it has to come down because now they have to think about it and describe it. So they have to (laughs) stop feeling the feeling to talk about the feeling. (laughs) Weird how our brain works. But when they get to talk about their feeling, you get credit for being a great listener because all they need to do is talk about the feeling. They just didn't know how. Right. They had to get it out somehow. Yeah. And we're messy. We don't care what kind of mess we make. We're just trying to get rid of negative feelings. Yeah. And it takes a lot of emotional intelligence to even stop and ask yourself, okay, wow, I'm feeling a lot. What is frustrating me the most? And if you have, and you do, it is very beneficial to bring it to the most because your brain knows exactly what means the most and it'll just pop out. I don't feel respected. I don't feel Mm. appreciated. I feel taken advantage of. Okay. The moment you name it, you know what to do about it. Very cool. Definitely taking back a lot of power rather than just venting frustrations everywhere. Yeah. (laughs) I I can only imagine. Yeah, go ahead. If somebody wants to reach out to you to talk to you about possibly uh, being under your guidance ship uh, for coaching or if they want to grab a copy of your book, where would they reach out to you? Two places. Um, and they can just reach out and have a conversation. I'm happy to just connect with the world because sometimes we just need to connect with somebody who's been through equal amount of crap, right? Um, right. I have a website, relevant-insight.com. Um, you can find the book, The Ask Framework on Amazon. But I love to connect with people on LinkedIn. And my name is spelled a little differently than most. So I have Carol with an E on the end. And then my last name is S-T-I-Z-Z-A. So Carol Stizza on LinkedIn and happy to connect, even if it's just to send you a virtual hug. Awesome. And I'll make sure that I include all of those links in the description of the podcast too, so that people can have an easy place to be able to locate this um, if they have that ability. I know a lot of people that listen to my podcast do it while they're driving. So I don't suggest that, but come back to it later. <laughs> Definitely oh. don't do that. Yeah. Especially after yeah. my story. Okay. Just right. don't. <laughs> and there's always one last question that I ask my guests before I let them go. And it's my favorite question of the whole interview. What's one thing that you love about yourself that's not related to your physical appearance? One thing I love about myself, and it baffles my family, is that I believe kindness is the biggest gift that I can give people. Yeah. And I just, I just, that's the way I think. 
I, I have to uh, commend you on that. You know, it's it's tough surviving repeated traumas and going through all of this and not becoming jaded to the world uh, for what it is that you've lost or gone through. But you've come through all of this with such a beautiful perspective of the world and such a beautiful light spirit. You're just such an incredible person. Well, I appreciate you saying that, but I just have to remind myself that nobody gets up any one day going, I can't wait to suck today. (laughs) (laughs) They're all trying to be their best. And if they are, God help me if I can see that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. Yes. That's it. That's a good motto to have. Nobody wakes up saying, I can't wait to suck today. That's right. That's right. I'm going to have to put that on a sticky note on my mirror. That's right. It does keep me being a little kinder than sometimes I feel like it, but sure. Yeah. (laughs) I know a few people that need to have this tattooed on their forearm. Oh, Oh, Carol, thank you so much for spending this time with me today. I've gotten so much out of this. I really appreciate you. This has just been fantastic. Oh, thanks for spending time with me as well. And thanks for having a place where people can go to listen. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's the best way to be able to recover is to hear that other people can do it. You can do it too. You are not alone. Oof. Yep. No. If you've enjoyed tonight's episode, please make sure you check out the episode description. There you're going to find links on how you can learn more about this guest, links to connect with them on social media, and how to support the podcast. Remember, I don't get paid to do this. My boss is a bit tight-fisted, but I can say that I work for myself. In short, this show really is all about the guest. If you've enjoyed their interview, please feel free to let them know. You can also tune into my other podcast, Growth from Darkness, which is co-hosted by a lovely lady from Australia. We talk about what trauma responses are and healthy ways to move beyond the past. For more information, just go to growthfromdarkness.com. It might be a couple of days late, but happy birthday, America.